All right, I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about, uh, about being caught in the act. Um, I'm extremely conscious that we, as a house, uh, are in a time of transition, and um, I'm not sure how long that transition is going to take. Uh, the children of Israel once started a transition from a place called Egypt to a place called Canaan, and um, if they'd been as in tune as they ought to have been, it should have taken 11 days. But how many of you know most of the time, most of us are not so in tune that we make it where we're supposed to go in the time scale that we could. So that, that uh, 11 days turned into two years. And... Uh, then there was an opportunity to, to fully embrace what it was this transition was taking them to, but uh, um, there was a popular uprising, which often there is in humanity, um, because we stop seeing on a supernatural God plane and see on a human plane, and therefore we try to reason things out and it doesn't make sense, so our our conclusion it doesn't make sense means therefore it can't be right, so we make decisions that are not God, because that's not how God works. So I pray that that's not going to be um, a determining factor in our journey. Um, the sad thing is that having gone down the line of reason and figured this out, you know, one and one makes two, that meant it took another 38 years after that two years before they actually made the point of of transition, somewhere in their faith wasn't taking hold of the difficult situation they were in. And it was difficult because um, they were being asked to go somewhere they had never been in a, in a style they had never adopted by instruction that they had never previously received. So I'm conscious that we are on one of those journeys, and uh, for those of you a part of The Rock, uh, I want to say I appreciate your grace and kindness of continuing with us, but you are part of this, and uh, we want to go to where it is we're going. So a lot of what we're saying at this time into the house relates to um, that transition, that journey, the, the things that we're picking up along the way. Um, when you're on a journey... Um, the scenery changes. How many of you ever noticed that? It's really funny that church people never want the scenery to change. Every time we look out of the church window of our gospel bus, uh, it all has to look the same. But um, that's foolishness. I don't know if you figured that out. That's complete foolishness. Because when you journey from somewhere to somewhere, the scenery changes. The one indicator you have when the scenery is not changing is what? The bus ain't moving. So if the scenery is not changing in your life, the bus ain't moving. Uh, if it does move, the scenery is going to change. Now, of course, as the scenery changes, then you have to adapt yourself to the changing scenery. And um, if that becomes long travel and you were to make that worldwide, then you would not only have to adapt to changing scenery, but changing cultures, changing attitudes, changing climates, changing temperatures, changing environments. Such is the nature of being on a journey and transitioning. So I'm saying that to help some of you to um, stay gracious with us in the process, because we are going somewhere 
But like Abraham, he got up and went, not quite knowing where he was going. So where all this finishes up, uh, your guess is probably as good as mine, but the best way to find out where it all finishes up is to get there, yeah? And then you don't have to speculate, because you say, this is it, this is the place. This, this is where God was leading us. So, so I said all that just to help you. Now, for those of you not necessarily part of the rock regularly, that's part of our journey. And, and some of the things I'm going to say to you tonight define something of who we are. And if you feel you can attach to that, then we would be delighted to have you along on the journey. Um, I have greatly appreciated the, the input that's come over the last couple of months particularly. Um, I think it's been outstanding. Uh, I appreciate that some of the concepts that are being introduced to you, I have thought about and discussed and conversed over for a long, long time. So for me, it's not, it's not shocking, you know, it's not. Now for somebody to question whether our conclusion on what the cross did is right is not shocking to me because I've been, I've been thinking those things through. We still believe in the cross. We still believe in Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We still believe in the validity of his sacrifice. We believe still in the love of God in doing it that way. It's just we don't necessarily conclude that some of the things we concluded that was uh, are actually what it was. It, in my view, it's actually better. Okay. So I'm not here to talk about that tonight, but I'm just building uh, the why and the what of, of what I want to say. Uh, the other thing I want to say before I get into my talk tonight is um, some of the things Joel said last week particularly kind of focused the attention, which I thought was excellent, focused the attention on why did Jesus die? What was the purpose of the cross? Okay. Now again, hear what I'm saying. It's better than you ever imagined. Um, what I'm saying to you is that I, I will talk to you about my current conclusions, okay? I say my because it's up to you whether they become your conclusions, my conclusions about uh, what I think was happening at the cross, what the cross was about, what we rejoice in, what was accomplished, and maybe some of the things that we have made it that it wasn't, but it's something better than that, okay? So, for example, we have scriptures like that Jesus was the lamb, this in, in Revelation chapter 12, the lamb slain from the, the creation of the, the earth. What does that mean? What, what is all that, what, what's, what's all that about? Well, I'm going to talk to you about things like what all that's about and how we hit the point of Jesus' sacrifice and what it is, and I'm not going to do it tonight, so I'm just really, I'm really just doing two things. Number one, I'm saying the questions that you have, we will attempt to answer. And number two, I'm saying that tonight's not the time to answer them, but I will have a go at it, which is probably going to be at the beginning of the new year. So watch this space, but I promise you I will deal with it. Is that okay? Tonight, John chapter 8 is a fascinating portion of the Bible. My personal view is that... Um, in its content, it is one of the most important portions of the gospel. <clears throat> so I want to read it to you from the message version of the Bible. And then I want to talk to you about something that, that has become very important to me over the last few weeks that I'd never seen before. Okay, so, so here we go. Jesus went across to Mount Olives. But he was soon back in the temple again and swarms of people came to him. He sat down and taught them. 
The religion scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They stood in her plain sight, they stood her in plain sight of everyone and said, Teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. They kept at him, badgering him. He straightened up and said, The sinless one among you, go first. Throw the stone. Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Hearing that, they walked away, one after another, beginning with the oldest. The woman was left alone. And Jesus stood and spoke to her woman. Where are they? Or in other versions of the Bible, where are your accusers? Does no one condemn you? No one, master. So Jesus said, neither do I. Go on your way from now on. Don't sin. Um, One little thought here before I start just chewing a little bit in this is, Peterson misses a word out here, which is the word accusers, and and, uh, it's not essential unless you understand what the word accuser means, because um, in Revelation chapter 12, it talks about the devil, however you conspire to think the devil is, or or who he is, or what he is, I mean, I do believe in the devil, Um, talks about him as being the accuser of the brethren, or the accuser of those who, who believe. That word accuser is a very interesting word because in the Greek, it's the Greek word kategoros, from which you can all guess what English word through Greek into Latin we have gleaned from the word kategoros, which is what? Categorize. We we lose so much when we look at these words because we think to accuse is simply to point the finger. But to accuse is more than that. It's actually to categorize people. It's to put them in neat little boxes that then allows us to make judgments about the boxes. And and God says that, that that's what the devil does. He tries to box you so that in those boxes we can make judgments about those boxes. So if I can box you as an atheist, you can make judgments of me as a Christian. Right? If I can box you as a Christian, you can make judgments of Fred... As an atheist, if I box you as gay or straight or whatever, and all these things are controversial, but the moment we start boxing, it takes us down a line that does not serve the purposes of God. It only serves what the devil came to do, which is to steal, kill, and destroy, because categorizing is never good. Now, one of the worst offenders of this was the Jewish nation. Because if you weren't a Jew, you were simply called a Gentile. Now, it didn't matter whether you were from Ethiopia, Syria, India, Lebanon. You know, it just didn't matter. You were not a Jew, therefore you were categorized as a non-Jew. You were categorized as a Gentile. So, of course, because of that, anybody who was not a Jew was therefore 
by the very essence of how the culture of Judaism had developed, was excluded, was, was rejected, was judged, was condemned, were not considered worth anything, hence the reason why the slang word for Gentile was dog. You were just a worthless dog. You're like somebody who wanders the street. Now, now how many of you think that that kind of categorization is what God had in mind when he first started to deal with these people through a man called Abraham? It was quite the opposite because he said, through you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In other words, he said, we're going to get rid of categorization because we're going to bring everybody under this wonderful promise of God to humanity. So the sad thing is that, that still this, this categorization uh, takes place even within those who are not now necessarily the Jews but would claim to be believers in God and followers of God and followers of the word. And it has to stop people. It has to stop. It has to stop. It's not the heart of God to categorize people. Now, you say, well, how do we deal with people? Well, the problem is mostly when we want to categorize it so we can judge. Yes? That's why it's not good. Because the Bible says, judge not or you will be judged. And with the measure that you judge, that's the measure that will be used to judge you. So, so we, we allow judgment, if there is judgment, and where that judgment comes, we allow it to come through God and what he did in Jesus. Our job is to bring the peaceable kingdom to the world and leave the rest to him. All the other stuff's not our business, okay? It's not our business, right? So having said that, we, we come to this this story, um, which I think has to rank highly as one of the most remarkable true events in the life and ministry of Jesus on earth. Now, I say remarkable true event because I don't want you to confuse this with a parable, which was a story about something. This is not a parable, okay? This is real life. Um, and so we, we, we find in this story um, these religious leaders bringing a woman to Jesus who, who has actually been caught having sex with the guy who wasn't her husband or he was having sex with this woman who wasn't his wife. And so whether it was a, a, a both in the same category or one doing one with the other, whatever it was, it was classified as adultery. It was somebody sleeping with somebody else's partner who was not theirs to sleep with. Now... Within this, I find it interesting that usually when we categorize and we're trying to make judgments, we make judgments from a perspective that only reflects our own personal conviction and not the justness of God. Now, let me explain something else as well. People will try to scare you with the phrase, but God is just. By that, what they mean is that God demands justice. And by that, what they mean is that you're not going to get away with anything because God will have justice. That's not what just means when it talks about God. When it says God is just, what it means is that God not only looks at the crime, but he looks at the criminal. It means that God not only looks at what was done, but why it was done. And in what circumstances it was done. So we have a wonderful illustration in the Bible in, 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 the, in the guise of a, a gentleman named David who became king of Israel, who was an adulterer and was a murderer, and yet God said, he's a man after my own heart. Now how can those three things go together? Because the question is, did he do it? The answer is yes. 
The question is, did this woman do it? The answer is yes, she was caught in the act. But you see, when talks about God being just, God saw something past David's foolish decisions and realized that in his heart there was something that was looking for righteousness, it was looking for hope, it was looking for God, and he's just a dumb, stupid human like the people I'm looking at today. And as I've said to you before, the, the great plague of humanity is not sin, it's stupid, okay? It's not that man has a sin problem, it's man has a stupid problem. And, and you see, you read the story of Jesus, and you know, you can forgive sin and you can cast out demons, but you can't cast out stupid. So, so the wonderful thing is, God understands that stupid is in us. The whole narrative of the Bible from Genesis chapter one is God made man in his image and his likeness and blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, and then stupid grew, okay? (laughs) Stupid decisions were made. Um, Sometimes we, we flatter the story of Adam and Eve in thinking somehow they mysteriously with great wisdom conspired to do something. No, they just didn't handle stupid very well And in not handling stupid very well, it means they did things that God said it would be really stupid to do that, right? The day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. How many of you know it's stupid to do that? So so in that context, stupid outweighs sin. It was just stupid to do that because God can do something about the sin and prove that. So you and I, what I'm saying is, you know, whether you're a good apple, bad apple, think you are, whatever, whatever, we, we, we are incredibly stupid. That's why, you know, in looking for metaphors, the Bible says, it's like this. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. In other words, like sheep, we get munching on the grass, we're doing our thing, and then we don't know where we are. Uh, and that's why it says, so God has laid on Jesus. I like God laid on Jesus the iniquity, the inequality, the stupidity, all got laid on Jesus on our behalf. So, so we have a situation here where, you know, this woman has been, been brought. We, we don't know anything about the woman, but there is a frightening factor that is missing in the text, but is, but is present in the story, which is if she was caught in the act, okay? How many people were there when she was caught? Takes two to tango. She was caught in the act of adultery. She was having sex with this guy. They were caught in the act. But the guy's not here being judged. You see, here's the problem. When we get into judgments by our own measurement, we only bring to book the people we want to bring to book. And the rest we make excuses for. Uh, if you want a slapping from me, you probably won't get one. It's probably just a, uh, it's probably just a, a, a phrase that I use, but then it might not be, so don't risk it. <laughs> when we've got an issue going on, don't give me this, oh, but she's such a lovely person. Oh, but he's such a lovely guy. Do you know, how many of you know who Fred West was? Right? Fred West was a, a, a they don't call him mult, serial killer. Serial killer. Both neighbors of Fred West said, oh, but he was a lovely guy. We used to see him. He was so kind. People said that about the Yorkshire Ripper. 
How many times do you see when somebody, for example, was arrested for, for multiple paedophile offences that the neighbours say, well, we'd have never known he was such a lovely neighbour. <laughs> That's what you've got going on here. Oh, well, he's such a lovely guy. I'm sure he never meant it. I'm sure that she must have enticed him into it. So we'll give him a break. That, that's how human judgments work. Uh, with all of us, none of us are safe in that environment. That's why Jesus didn't say, some of you judge and some of you don't judge. He said, don't judge. Don't judge anything before the appointed time. Leave it till the Lord comes. Let him deal with it. So you've got a classic example of here of what religion will do to people. And some of you have been desperately, desperately damaged by the very thing I'm talking about. You had the finger pointed at you by religion that said, because you're this, you can't be that. Because you've done that, we can't let you have this. Because you've been this. And so we then find as well a categorizing of offenses. So it's like the danger is in reading a scripture like this, that therefore because this happened, for example, sexual issues like adultery must be the worst thing that you could possibly do because we've got this story. That would be reading into the story something that's not there because it's not there to tell you this is the worst that you could do. Now, now it's never pleasant. Adultery is a horrible thing. And, and sometimes when we don't realize when, when we get sexually involved, actually what we're giving out of ourselves and what we're receiving, the, the, you know. Uh, you try going into to Marks and Spencers or or boots, or next, or whatever, and taking something out the door without paying. How of you know you're not going to get away with it? Why is it then we think that we can do whatever the heck we like in life, and walk out the door, and there's never a price tag? I mean, that, that's stupid. That's really stupid. Now, the wonderful thing is, God knows it's stupid, so he says, that was stupid. But you see, he's done everything there is to deal with that. He knows when we get stupid, but the good lesson in stupidity is to learn how not to be stupid, right? That this has a price tag, okay? So th those are just some little life lessons there. So you can see we've already got a problem with what religion does because when religion starts to judge people, it categorizes. The guy's not really as guilty as the woman. So we need to do more against the woman than... We do again. Can you see how this is screwed up straight away? Hate it, right? So, in this context, the problem that's driving the issue is they said in Moses' law, we're ordered to stone adulterers. Now, I've got some problems with that, and there are good questions to say. See, again, here we are, you know, stone them. And all some of us think of as, you know, life of Brian, stone him. We are detached from reality. Um, we're detached from the fact that it meant me, us, taking you to a pit outside the city, a rocky pit, and uh, taking you to a ledge twice the height of a man, so you better hope it's Keith. <laughs> Love you, Keith. Bless your heart. You know, you don't want to be to the tallest person in here because it's going to be twice the height. And then they would throw the person, the offender, face first in, onto the stones in the pit. 
And then they'd flip them over to see if you'd actually been killed by the fall, which of course, if you're six foot tall, that's a 12 foot tall and a 12 foot fall. And if you weren't dead, then the accuser would have the right to take the first stone, which must not be a pebble, but also must not be a rock, and would have the right to throw that rock at your chest to see if that would kill you. And if that didn't kill you, then subsequently we carried on the exercise basically until you were dead. So when you read about stoning, we all bypass it. It's like we said about Noah's Ark. Nobody ever draws Noah's Ark on the wall of their children's bedroom with dead bodies floating around the boat. It's like, what's all that about? We, we asked the wrong question. You know, and it, it, I, 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 there was something on here that's not there in the message, because there are titles in the message, and the next verse after verse 11 is titled, You're Missing God in All of This, and that's a big theme of my line. You're missing God in all of this somewhere, because we, we haven't looked beyond the event to say, what the heck was all that about? Now, again, you might say, well, explain to us why stoning was in the law. I haven't got time tonight. But we shouldn't look on it like, oh, it was a great idea from God. What a brilliant way to get rid of adulterers. And no, it's not. Uh, in, in Muslim culture, you would be wrapped in two shrouds. You would be buried up to your chest if you were a man or beneath the breast if you were a woman. And then you would be stoned accordingly with your accuser allowed to throw the first stone. But the first stones would not be of such a size to kill you. They must just be of a size to affect you. So this thing could take from 20 minutes to two hours for you to die. It's nasty, isn't it? I'm just trying to put you in position of thinking these things through because we just flip over this. We flip over this stuff. So the problem was this, though, that, that when they said in Moses' law it is written, they were right. They were actually right. That was in Moses' law. Why was it there? I've told you a question for another day, but they were right. So, so the issue is some of the stuff that we will attempt to do just because we think we're right are pretty mean. There's nothing worse in human relationships than concluding, I'm right. Because the cruel things that you will do when you come to the conclusion I'm right are unspeakable. Somebody stupidly once said, sticks and stones will break my bones, but calling never hurt me. What a dumb stoop that person should be stoned. <laughs> now, in another context, when the person said that, they probably were stoned. Because it's the kind of thing you probably would say in that kind of stupor. How many of you know, we may not stone people with rocks, but but we can stone people with our words. Even, you know, one of the phrases we use for shutting people out is, I stonewalled them. So, where does that come from? Most of it's driven when we, in any situation, conclude I'm right. Now, the issue is you might be. But that's why Jesus, that's why God said, in the beginning to Adam and Eve of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is right and wrong, you must not eat because you'll die. Because once right and wrong is the governing factor in our decision making, we as human beings get very cruel. So God said, I want you to eat at the tree of life. I love something my friend Ted Hanson says. He said, you were never born to be right. You were born to be loved. 
But we spend most of our life trying to be right rather than learning to be loved. And if we'd stop trying to be light, right and start learning to be loved, we'd find the life that God talked about from the tree of life. So we've got to stop that, okay? So all this is happening because some people were right, thought they were right, and decided in the case that they were right, they were going to act according to them being right, and somebody was going to die for this. Don't let that be the driving factor. If it was, I'd be in trouble because I'm always right. I'm just kidding. So in this atmosphere, which is actually not about adultery, and it's actually about something more. Where's God in all of this? Jesus kneels down and he writes, starts to write in, in the sand. Now, you know, people have speculated on on what he was writing, and it doesn't really matter, to be honest. Um, all we know is that within the context of him doing that, then uh, it, when, he, when he straightens up after writing in the sand, he, 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 makes, he makes this amazing statement to those who are still badgering him because they're right. He says, okay, I, he can't argue that they're right, but he said, okay, but here's, here's how we're going to handle this. Whoever of you has never sinned in any way, you cast the first stone. If you're so flipping right, and so full of your own self-importance, have the guts to prove it right now by showing that you've never done anything worthy of judgment or punishment. Wonderful point. That shuts most people up. Now I say it shuts most people up because sadly in my life I've found people who that doesn't shut up I think because somehow they've become convinced that they are so right and therefore so not under any obligation to anybody that they can act with unkindness towards anybody they wish and it's not acceptable. Let him who is no sin, who's never done anything wrong, let him be the first to cast a stone. And he says, hearing this, they walked away one after another, beginning with the eldest. Now, Some things I want to say just to bring you to my main point tonight. Has it dawned on you that that Jesus wanted them to own their own errors? So so Jesus' way of dealing with categorization of others and judgment of others is to get those who are doing the judging to own their own errors. What wonderful wisdom. Instead of arguing the right and wrong and how right and how wrong and how bad and how not so bad which is what we get into when we get this right thing so we get some sins are worse than others so, so here's, what, here's what preachers will tell you one sin will take you to hell all sin is the same until they encounter people who sin and then all of a sudden some, all of a sudden, some sins are worse than others so if one sin can destroy you then how much more destroyed can you become by the nature of what that sin is? It it all becomes really ridiculously stupid and I find find some of the things I've preached in the past ridiculously stupid because they they honestly don't make any sense to me um, anymore. The truth is, if stupidity takes us away from God and into that forgetfulness of sin that we forget who we are in Him and we miss the mark, it's all the same. All the same. Because all of it does something to us. Now what I've, I've learned 
in recent times is that hasn't done anything to God like I thought it had. Because the one who said, I am the Lord, I do not change, was never ashamed of humanity in the first place. So there's no point along where he suddenly said, I'm ashamed of humanity. He was never ashamed. His whole deal with Adam and Eve was, I've already forgiven you, but how am I going to help you to live with yourself? Because I can live with you, but how can I get you to live with yourself? So Jesus is a lot about God making a way that we can live with ourselves. You have something to grab onto that allows us to say, I know that my shame is covered. So anyway, I believe there are two reasons that, 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 that this was happening. I believe the main reason God wants us to own our own errors is first, that we might know and recognize where right standing before God comes from. It does not come from you. Never has, never will. Non-righteous, the Bible says, no, not one. In our own efforts. The Bible says righteousness is a gift. And righteousness is, is our right standing with God. No barrier between us and God. So if righteousness is, is a gift, not something that I earn, but something that God gives me, all I have to do is accept that what God has given me belongs to me. Now the legalists can't handle that because there's no big judgments going on there. But that's the first reason. The second reason why God wants us to own our own errors is that we might treat others with and in the same kind and measure of grace with which we have been treated. This is a big issue. It's a big issue in humanity. It's a big issue in the organization, the, 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 the family, the, the community called the church. So why does it seem to me that most people's conclusion on the truth of grace is that it empowers them to say no? So I want us to get the right handle on this and I'm having a whinge now, so just give me two minutes for a whinge, okay? So we're talking about grace, recognizing the measure of the grace with which we have been treated. But, but here's what I want us to grasp because it, it's about then how we relate that into life, the peaceable kingdom that God is wanting to build. Because it seems to me that most people's conclusion on the truth of grace is it empowers me to say no. No, I don't have to come every week. No, I don't have to give 10%, right? No, I don't have to volunteer for that. No, I don't have to turn up. Why? Because I'm under grace. I've been removed from law. Why is it that we, we conclude that? Why is it uh, my dear friend preached a message the other week about boundaries. Why is it that when we talk about boundaries, we only take boundaries to be the empowerment to say no? How about some boundaries that empower you to say yes? If it were me, I would do this, but I'm going to set a boundary and say that's not the best thing to do because others need to be blessed. So I'm going to say yes and not no. I'm going to set a boundary to my no saying that allows me to say yes to some things. Otherwise, we get this thing screwed up, guys. I, I, you know, and I'm not blaming you, I'm just saying the stupidity of human nature, the moment we hear boundaries, says, I have the right to say no. We also have the right to say yes. So how about saying yes more than no? Because the Bible says that in Christ Jesus, the promises of God are always yes, right? But the problem is, the image of God most of us have got is a God who was always saying no isn't it? It says no to the world. 
says no to people, but it's a God who says yes. Right? The man from Del Monte say yes. Why does it seem to stimulate what Richard Dawkins calls the selfish gene? Rather than the Christ gene, which is driven by a spirit of sacrificial giving. You see, I love to teach grace. I love grace. I'm going to keep teaching it. But, but I found it stimulates that gene that Richard Dawkins talks about, which is the selfish gene. Oh, well, I'm under grace, so I don't and I can't and I won't. And I'm, I'm not going to. Well, how about the Christ gene? The Christ gene... The Christ gene is driven by a spirit of sacrificial giving. So why is it also grace translated in so many lives to involve only the privilege I can now give myself rather than how I, in that spirit of grace, can give more for others? Have you noticed that often the liberation we find from finding the grace of God is the permissions that we give ourselves? It's the privileges we give ourselves and often because we've actually lost sight that grace came to our lives so we can be gracious to others. So, I've had my whinge. Okay. So, stone me. He's not the Messiah, he's just a very naughty boy. <laughs> right, some of you don't get that, but that, don't worry about it. Within this story, that's what the Jews thought about Jesus. He's not the Messiah, he's just a very naughty boy. So, within this story, there's a point to be made that I've never heard anyone ever draw attention to, never mind preach it. And this point critically emphasized what, what I want to say. Now, bear in mind again, this event is concentrated around a particular human failure. Okay? So it's not just that that is what this is about, it's just that that's the particular human failure this is drawn around. And this allows the development of the story, because if he hadn't been that kind of failure, he wouldn't have had the story, because they wouldn't be wanting to stone him. So, unfortunately, it's like we need that part of the story to, to make the story what it is. So it allows the development of the story, but it should not be taken that the principles revealed should only apply to that one specific behavior, or just those of that type. So we've looked at the event and what happened, so I'm, I'm not going to repeat all of that again. But here's what I want to highlight. It's in the end of verse 6 and running through to verse 9. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. They kept at him, badgering him. He straightened up and said, The sinless one among you, go first, throw the stone. Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Now this, this is the thing I want to bring home to you tonight. Hearing that, they walked away. Now, some of you think, that's brilliant. No, it's not. It's sadness of the highest degree. That those who had brought the condemnation, having been shown they had no grounds in themselves for condemnation, even if the law said that it was wrong, now they had encountered grace, and grace had touched their lives to relieve them from doing something that they would then be accountable for, simply walked away, one after another, beginning at the oldest, who probably ought to have known better. You see... Every one of these people who were there wanting to do the stoning were unwilling to be identified with the woman and her failure 
Yet they started this thing by supposedly upholding truth, but then when truth comes out, all of a sudden we're not upholding truth, only the truth that applies to you. So in spite of being confronted with their own frailties, they were insistent on protecting their own reputation. Sad to say, I've watched this happen to me. I've watched that walking away, that rightly pointing out the wrongs in me. I'm far from Mr. Perfect. So in terms of pointing out my errors, probably absolutely right. But God loves me, whether you like it or not. And God did something in Jesus that said grace is on his life. And God dealt with me justly. And God said, here's my judgment against Lance Chapman. Stupid? Yes. Forgiven? Yes. Loved? Yes. Called? Yes. Owned? Yes. Blessed? Yes. So, here's the deal. In view of that, if you are perfect, you'll be the first to cast the stone. But God wasn't doing that in judgment. He was trying to give these people a wonderful opportunity to say, do you know what? Actually, I'm no different to this woman. So instead of walking away, you know what should have happened? One by one, beginning at the oldest, they should have said, if you're judging her, you're judging me. And what should have happened is that the crowd that were here riling against that half-naked woman should now be with the half-naked woman so they're a crowd with Jesus here so Jesus could say to all of them, now you've got the point, right? Where are your accusers? To those who had to admit they were with sin because they couldn't cast the stone. Where are your accusers? Well, neither do I condemn any of you. All of you, go and sin no more. You stop judging. You stop messing around. You catch the light of this because here's the revelation of God in grace. But it didn't happen because having been exposed to their own frailties, they walked away. I had some major ministry leaders would not touch me with the barge pole some years ago and I understood why because they were afraid that their reputation may be tarnished by staying attached to me. They were afraid that if people condemned me they may condemn them, that if people judged me, they may judge them. If people were unkind to me, they may be unkind to them. And after all, there were churches and good names and ministries at stake. Does that sound like the Spirit of Christ? And all these, these people, lovely people, blessed people, 
I just simply want to raise that to your attention because that's how we tend to be in the forgiveness that we have received when the truth is if none of us can cast the stone, that's not enough just to say, well, I'll walk away then, but I'm not going to get tarnished with this. Our responsibility in Christ is to say, now I go and stand with the woman. Let me read you something from Isaiah 53 and verse 12. Therefore, this is talking about Jesus and his sacrifice, okay? Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is honoring the work of Jesus at the cross, because he poured out his soul unto death, listen, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Jesus said, okay, all the judgments that you're doing, I'm standing with the one that you're judging. If it costs me my life, I die. Guess what happened? It cost him his life. And he died. Why? Because he numbered himself with the transgression. Because he stood with the woman. Because he didn't walk away to preserve his reputation. But you see what followed that was something called resurrection. And actually the main reason why we're here today is not the death of Jesus. The main reason we're here is this resurrection. (laughs) Because the resurrection was the proof that whatever all that was about, it actually worked and it worked really well. And the truth was that dead things can live again. And when you align yourself with the transgressor, and when you're prepared to lose reputation and lose name and lose ministry and lose all that is precious to you because you will stand with someone else from the same grace has been given you, God says, here's your inheritance. It's called resurrection. It's called life from the dead. It's called supernatural. That's the promise. So I've gone on a bit, I'm going to close, but the truth is any doofus can stand pointing out the error of others. Seriously. People take on this iron mighty, oh I'm so clever because I'm pointing out the error in the name of God, you doofus. Any doofus can do that. Any seriously uneducated whatever can point out the errors in others and we think we're so clever, oh I've spotted the errors in that person. Oh, yes, and I know these errors. Any doofus can do that. But it's not so easy to stand with the one who's in error. To identify yourself as the Apostle Paul did when he said these words, there, but for the grace of God, go I. That's Paul's ultimate response You doofus can stand and point out the errors, but here's my view to that. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Whether it's adultery, paedophilia, murder, violent behavior, anger, stealing, judgments, offenses, there but for the grace of God, go I, says Paul. So what's the factory in all of this? The grace of God. And what's the wonderful thing about the grace of God? It's given without measure to all humanity who will receive it. Oh, can't you see that Jesus was giving everybody there the opportunity to live? And we thought it was just about the woman. He's giving the jolly accusers the opportunity to live. Okay, do you get it? You're not without sin. Move from here to there and we're in business, Okay. He was numbered with the transgressors. 
Now, I want to say this, and then I've got one last verse to finish. If you're not prepared to do this, you're in the wrong place at the rock. Okay? Just straightforward. If you're not prepared to do this, you, my friend, are in the wrong place at the rock. So let me give you one more verse. And I can't even remember. It's in 1 Timothy, I believe, chapter 1. Listen to this. This is a faithful saying... And worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How many have heard that? Put your hand up if you've heard that. How many of you know that's what I call half-verse theology? I could quote that to you. This is the faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. However, if you look at the, just after the word sinners, what do you see? A comma. Which means that's not the end of the statement, stupid. See, half-verse theology. Of whom I am the chief. Paul says, if you miss that bit out, you've missed the point. He's not saying this so that you might know that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's saying it so you might know in that context that I am the chief, therefore I cannot judge you. I stand with sinners. I stand with transgressors because that's when this wonderful grace works for me when I'm prepared to stand and own my stuff is when grace works. So you've got to quote the whole verse of whom I am the chief. Is what Christ came into the world to save. Now I'm going to quote the rest of the, the verse from the message. Because Paul says, this faithful saying worthy of all acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And here's, here's, what, here's what the message says. I'm proof. Public sinner number one. Of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. Right? Do you get that? Of someone who could never have made it apart from sheer mercy. Got news for you. If you've made it, and whatever it is, and whatever made is interpreted to be, if you've made it what he's talking about, you have done it because of sheer mercy. And if you haven't, you have not made it. You've made something, and I don't know what your it is, but your it's going to be more like those Pharisees who were judging from right and wrong. But if you've made it, you made it. You couldn't make it apart from sheer mercy. And here's what Paul says, and now he shows me off. Evidence of his endless patience, right? So God shows him off, and who is he? The chief of sinners, right? Public sinner number one, God shows me off. Here's my public sinner number one. Exhibit one, Paul, chief of sinners, he says, he shows me off as evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. I love it. Shows me off, says, okay, some of you are right on the edge of trusting him forever and, and you're wondering whether you can make it. Exhibit one, chief of sinners. My best exhibit. Why am I showing you him? Because you can't be any worse than him because he's the chief and you may be a darn sight better than him. But what I'm wanting you to know is that you're right on the edge of trusting him forever. Right on the edge, right on the edge. What Jesus was trying to do was get these people right on the edge of trusting him forever. 
And everyone who would have listened and sat with this woman would have come right on the edge of trusting him forever and thought this is marvelous. Now we have no record of what happened to that woman. I like to think things went pretty good. Whether she was still stupid or not is another matter, but we don't know. Why, why don't we know? Because I don't think we were ever supposed to know because we'd do the same thing with the result as we did with the, the cause. We'd, we'd, we'd categorize it and box it and say, so it looks like this, right? And then anything that didn't look like that, we'd say, ah, okay, so he came and he removed your accusation and, and he removed all condemnation, didn't condemn you, and he said, go and sin no more. Ah, but look what you did after he said, go and sin no more. So we categorize it again. So people who do that are X. So we don't get any record of what happened because the book was left open because it was about all humanity. It was about all kinds of humanity. It was about the you and the me in here tonight, the us. That was left open saying that, well... It's not important that you know what happened to the woman. All you need to know is that when he aligned himself with her, he could say to her, it's done, right? It's done. You're, on the, you're right on the edge of trusting him forever. So now fall over the edge. So fall over the edge. You're right on the edge of trusting him forever. This wonderful one who aligns himself with you. Steps away from the crowd that condemns you. Whatever that crowd is. If you've been damaged by religion or whatever. Jesus steps away from that crowd. Aligns himself with you and says, Ha, now, you're right on the edge of trusting him forever. But yeah, it's just for a moment. If you want to fall over the edge tonight, do something very simple. Just while every head is bowed, every eye is closed, just slip your hand up. Just, just say, I'm falling over the edge. To thank you. To trust him forever. To trust him. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Anybody else? Thank you. It's just really a letting go, isn't it? Thank you. It's like I'm falling over the edge to trust him forever. You know the wonderful thing about trusting him forever means that your well-being has gone out of your hands and into his, because that's what trusting him forever means. <laughs> when you trust someone, it means I've given, I have given myself into his care. Anybody else? Just, we're just going to pray a little prayer today. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pray a, an overriding prayer over you for just one second. But here's the prayer that I want you to pray. You can pray it just quietly yourself right where you are, even those who've raised your hands. That Lord Jesus, I trust in you. I allow myself to fall over the edge into fully trusting you for my salvation, my hope, my life. And I receive it in Jesus' name because of the mercy that covers me and the grace that has been given me. Thank you in Jesus' name. So, Father, let that be a reality right now in every life that expressed that desire. 
And you, the one who we have put our trust in, show yourself faithful as you can't help but do. That in all this we are loved and you'll bring us into the fullness of all that you have planned for us in this wonderful thing called the kingdom of God, this peaceable kingdom. And for all of us, I pray tonight, Father, that our heart and spirit will be that we stand with the woman. We stand with the accused. We stand with the transgressor. We place ourselves with them knowing that it is only grace that saves any of us. So we don't want to judge. We don't want to categorize. But we want to be under and in the grace that is being received and shown so that all of us by grace will prove that love wins in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're done. Bless you. Thank you for listening. We love you. Enjoy your, enjoy your desserts. And uh, I won't see you next week. I'll be in Canada. But you'll have a great time. So love you. Bless you.